Hello, this is Aaron, and welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, as you can recall, last time I said that I had recorded my podcast way in advance, and so it was not yet 2022 uh, when Monday's podcast came out. But this time, it's actually 2022 when I'm recording, so I'm going to say Happy New Year to all of you. And again, a big thank you to those of you who responded to my year-end promotion and signed up to become members or subscribers. I really appreciate it. A few weeks back, the New York Times did an article about how American conservatives were getting enamored of Hungary. And I was watching some of the discussion about this on Twitter, and a lot of the people who were in a more neoliberal mode were, of course, poo-pooing this. And some of them were poo-pooing it, because they were claiming that Hungary is basically a small, poor country. So Matthew Iglesias, some of you may know him, he's a left-wing but very heterodox, independent-thinking pundit. He said, hey, look at Hungary's per capita GDP, look at our per capita GDP, <laughs> which would you rather be? And so they're kind of poo-pooing it on that basis. And of course, that's true. Hungary is a much poorer country. Of course, that applies to most European countries. I think all European countries have a lower GDP than us. Maybe Switzerland doesn't. Sweden, a country that a lot of Americans love to highlight, is, of course, also a very small country and also has a lower GDP than the United States, although it is higher than Hungary's because Hungary was you know, under communist domination for a very long time. Nevertheless, I found this critique of Hungary basically on an economic basis to be very revealing of the way that a lot of people uh, on both the left and the right use a very narrow vision, a very narrow definition of public well-being, of societal flourishing that basically comes down to uh, the size of the GDP or per capita GDP, or per capita income, or some other reductionist statistic like that. So my friend Oren Cass, who runs an outfit called American Compass, it's a conservative think tank that's essentially reformist. It's pushing back against some of the uh, neoliberal economic dogmas that have essentially dominated the right for quite a while. He wrote a book called The Once and Future Worker, and in that book, he called this economic piety in the sense of uh, not piety as we might understand it religiously, but the size of the pie. That basically what matters is, is the size of the pie growing? Is GDP growing? And as long as the size of the pie is, is growing, all is well. And everything that we should be doing is about trying to increase the size of the GDP pie. Now, I would say GDP is very important. All things being equal, it's definitely much better to be rich than poor. I don't think anyone would deny that economic dimensions of human prosperity are very important. But again, their concept of it is very narrow, and it applies to a lot of these, again, neoliberal types. And you often see them arguing online, and I'm going to give you a little insight here, 
you often see these people argue online that things are actually going pretty well in America. You'll read some economic study and they'll say, if you look at, you know, incomes adjusted for inflation and we use the right inflation member uh, measure, the uh, what's it called? The uh, consumer price deflator. So I can't remember the exact name of it, but it's like essentially a, uh, a personal consumption expenditures. That's what a personal consumption expenditures rather than the consumer price index. And if you make all these adjustments and if you do this and that, things are actually going pretty well in America. And in essence, these people have to argue that things are going well in America because their sole definition of what constitutes a prosperous society is based around GDP. Now, that's not entirely true of people on the left because they have you know, a few dogmas around wokeness, although I will say a number of these kind of neoliberal types like Iglesias put back, push back against that. So they would also say, you know, you have to have a certain baseline uh, of policies, but those don't really uh, determine how prosperous you are. It's really, it's like, are you legitimate or illegitimate? And so when you define prosperity based on economic growth, GDP, incomes, etc., then you basically have to argue that things are going well or you legitimate the populist complaints about America. So if you look at the Trump voters, the Trump voters said America is not going well. And going back to um, uh, the you know the election, it's like we're going to, uh, it's Michael Moore, that's the name I was trying to call, Michael Moore, the uh, liberal filmmaker, he made this infamous tweet where he's like, these guys see what's happening to them. They know how screwed over they've been by society. And now they just want to burn the whole thing down. And they're just going to drop a bomb called Trump on the whole thing and try to burn it down. And so all of the never Trump types, which includes basically all of these neoliberal types, basically more or less have to argue that things are ultimately pretty good or in a sense, by their own criterion of economic growth, they have uh, legitimated the, po the populist complaint. They've said, yes, you do have something to be upset about. And that's why you see a lot of these people making arguments that the economy is really so much better than you think it is. Now, Iglesias himself actually does criticize a lot of aspects of his society. Since he left Vox and went over to Substack, he's sort of been off the chain. He's been much more entertaining, uh, uh, much more fun guy to follow. But you really see this uh, in guys like Noah Smith as well, who's sort of making these suns always shining arguments. And you really see it among a lot of the conservative uh, establishment. And I especially notice it uh, in the old Reformacon group at AEI. So the Reformacons, it's interesting, they seemed to have come out of this idea where we actually were supposed to be paying attention to some of these other measures and looking at wonky solutions to improve the well-being of the working class, like you know child tax credits and making some adjustments there and things like that. But by and large, this group became extraordinarily hostile to Trump. Uh, maybe, you know, Douthat, you could put Ross Douthat in this group. They were like in the never Trump category. And I, you know, I can't say exactly why that is. But in essence, perhaps it's because Trump sort of glommed on to some of the issues that they had been talking about, but took them in a direction that they didn't want to go. And his behavior 
maybe if they embraced him, their, his behavior would reflect back on them. But regardless, this group of people really rejected Trump. And you know, with some exceptions, they have really now been making a ton of arguments about how great everything is. You know, what's his name? Michael Strain at AEI. He's their head of economic policy. He's one of these sun is always shining kind of guys. You also see it uh, in, you know, my old former uh, Manhattan Institute colleague, Scott Winship, who's now at AEI. He always makes these arguments that everything's a lot better than you think it is. And I, I like these guys. I like Winship, uh, certainly. And I think a lot of his research is very interesting. And I like to, you know, take account of some of the things that he's saying. But I think these kind of reductionist economic arguments fall flat because most people's idea of what a flourishing society looks like goes well beyond um, economics. So, for example, think about social breakdowns in these communities. The book Hillbilly Elegy, one of the things that I sort of critiqued about the book when it came out was its focus on Appalachia. Now, obviously, J.D. Vance came from an Appalachian background, so that's natural. But Appalachians are not typical of the historic working class in America. They have always been a fairly dysfunctional group. If you look at other uh, white working class or black working class communities, they actually had much more functional communities you know, prior to deindustrialization. Robert Putnam, uh, the Harvard sociologist who wrote the book Our Kids, he talked about his town, Port Clinton, Ohio, where he grew up, and how it was almost this idyllic Norman Rockwell-type community. It was very functional, and it wasn't just the professional class that did well. It was even the working class. They had stable marriages. They owned homes. They were raising successful kids, etc. But fast forward several decades— and there had been a collapse in the functioning of the working class port, uh, portion of that. We also see it in Charles Murray in his book, Coming Apart. And I see it where I grew up. I grew up in a rural working class county in southern Indiana. Uh, I like to say we were rural, but not remote. I was not like in a town in Nebraska, you know, hundreds of miles from the nearest big city. We were about 45 minutes from Louisville, Kentucky. It was not really a farming community. Most people drove into Louisville, Kentucky and worked at blue-collar occupations, some of which were actually pretty good jobs. People would work at Ford Motor Company or GE or Reynolds Metals or some of these unionized plants and would do okay, but that was still only a small section of the community. It was largely you know, not college-educated, very blue-collar, and yet it was a high-functioning community in many ways. Most parents were still married. Uh, the community was sort of shaped by the uh, norms of kind of married, functional, intact family societies. Uh, there were some out of wedlock births, not a huge amount. It was still very unusual. People would get drunk, and yes, people would die in drunk driving accidents, or people would smoke pot, but there were not opioids. Uh, there was none of this stuff. And people, by and large, graduated from high school and went to work. They got jobs, and you know they built careers, and they went on to build a life there. Well, fast forward 40 years, and that community is quite different. In many ways, it's more prosperous than it's ever been. They actually put a casino in my county, and so now, in essence, all the streets are paved with gold. So the street that I grew up on, or called the road, wasn't really a street, 
When I first moved there, it was a gravel road. Well, now it's nicer than state highways. You know, they've leveled off some of the hills and they've, you know, built little causeways across gullies. Extremely nice. The county engineer apparently lives on the road. and That accounts at least in part for it. But there's a lot of things that have gotten better materially in that community. There's now a library near where I grew up. Uh, there's you know, a brand new fire station. There's an ambulance station there, which was never there before. So lots of things have been purchased with nine figures in casino money that have been rolling into this town from all the taxes. It's one of the biggest, busiest casinos in the state because it's the only casino near Louisville, Kentucky. And yet, from a social perspective, we've seen tremendous breakdown. When I looked up the out-of-wedlock birth rate there a while back, it was 37% if I recall correctly, that's certainly not good. Most marriages now are characterized by a lot of instability. So even for people who were born in wedlock, divorce is now propagated through multiple generations. And now what we see, similar to the inner city conditions that we, you know, we all used to hear about, now we've got grandparents caring for the, you know, the grandkids because the mom is drug addicted and oh, by the way, grandma herself is divorced and as a single mom. And, you know, essentially there's maybe one thin layer of intact, socially intact community at maybe my parents' generation. But once you get below that, it's much, much more dysfunctional. And again, I mentioned hard drugs, huge hard drug problems in ways that there weren't before. And a lot of what we see uh, that we've talked about from men's issues on the site a lot of young men, failure to launch, uh, sitting around smoking pot, not working too hard, don't can't keep a job, very hard for even in the employers in the area to find people. You know, my dad ran a gravel quarry there, and he had huge trouble finding people with a high school degree or GED who had a driver's license, could pass a drug test, and show up to work every day. That was hard. There's a lot of instability and difficulty in people building a life. And so, although that community is vastly more pro prosperous than it used to be, in many respects, things have degraded a long way since when I was a kid. Because when I was a kid, people would not only leave their doors unlocked, people left their keys in their car. Not everybody did that, but I know people who just left their keys in their car. Kind of crazy. Nobody locked their doors. Well, you can believe everybody locks their doors now because there's crime in a way there didn't used to be. Even occasionally, horrific murders. It's these people desperate for drug money or high on drugs come in and just murder. It's, it's bad. And so when all these think tankers look at the GDP, look at some statistics like that, and they say, oh, everything's looking good, they're missing an important part of the equation. So that's one dimension. There's other dimensions as well that come to the way many of our policies have politically and socially destabilized the country. All of this polarization that we see, all of this dissension is in part a product of the policies that we have been pushing at the national level. So there's an economist here in the state of Indiana, Mike Hicks. I know him. I like him. Uh, he says a lot of great stuff that I, I love to retweet. He is sort of libertarian-ish, like a lot of economists are, and he sees the world like an economist. So he did a study 
uh, at Ball State University where they looked at the impact of immigration on the state of Indiana, and they concluded that immigration was a net positive. So like most economists, he's very favorable to immigration because it's actually very, very simple logic. When you move someone from a low productivity location to a high productivity location, that person's productivity goes up, that increases GDP, that makes things better for everybody. It's straightforward increase in GDP by redeploying human capital into a more productive environment. However, the same economist wrote studies. I don't know if he actually wrote an official study, but he certainly wrote commentaries talking about how Trump's tariffs were a disaster for the state of Indiana. He's definitely a never-Trumper, you know, loathed Trump and all of that stuff. And yet in his immigration study, nowhere did he take into account all of the bad things that he attributed to Donald Trump as a cost of immigration. Because apart from immigration, Donald Trump would never have become president. His line, the one that first put him on my radar, was, we're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. Immigration was really such a key issue for Trump. Immigration, in many respects, has blown up the politics of America. And maybe you disagree that Trump's good. I'm not saying that I agree with all of his criticisms of Trump, but here's a guy who attributes enormous negativity to the Trump presidency. And yet the thing that more than any other factor brought about Trump's presidency is completely absent from his analysis of the cost and the benefits of immigration. And that's where we see that the broader cultural and political consequences of our decision decisions are often missing from many of these analyses that people are pushing. Another thing that matters to people, feeling like you live at home, feeling like the place that you live is a cultural, comfortable place that's similar to where you grew up, that reflects your values, etc. This guy who's running for president of France, Eric Zemmour, he gave in his announcement speech this line, you feel like a foreigner in your own country. And he, of course, is very negative on immigration. He's saying immigration is transforming France for the negative. People are coming. They're not assimilating. And as a result of this massive inflow of immigrants into France, the French people who've been here for hundreds, thousands of years in this place now no longer feel like they live in their own country. They feel that they're almost living in a foreign country because there are so many foreigners and so much foreign influence around. M many people who would not be sympathetic to that line of thinking are actually very sympathetic when that line of thinking is used about gentrification. When there is a minority community in the city and all of a sudden, here come the gentrifiers here come rich white home buyers coming into the neighborhood. Here come the artists. They say, oh, yes, I understand. This is a threat to that community. It's a threat to them economically, and it's a threat to their values. And actually, the research that's been done by the Furman Center at NYU and places like that show, not very many people are actually displaced by gentrification. Uh, there are, in some respects, lower levels of people moving out of neighborhoods that have experienced 
what you might think of as gentrification. Nevertheless, that inflow fundamentally changes the neighborhoods culturally. We see that in Oakland, California. There was an article from a few years ago about how all these gentrifiers were calling the city and complaining because the long-standing gospel choirs of these black churches were practicing, and they thought the practice was noisy, it was causing a racket, it was causing a public disturbance, and they were complaining about it. And imagine that you've lived in this neighborhood in Oakland for a long time, and you're Gospel choir has been practicing all this time. You probably like to hear the gospel choir practice. And all of a sudden, these new people come in, and they start laying down the new law. So regardless of your political persuasion, I think that you're going to find cases in which these cultural changes are unpleasant and uncomfortable to people and threaten something that makes the community of value to them, that is a part of the definition of flourishing now. Do I mean I think we need to lock down change, try to encase our communities in amber? No, we can't stop dynamic change from happening demographically, especially in cities. Rural areas have always been less demographically dynamic. Cities are protean. There's turnover in all of these cities. So I'm not saying we have to lock it down, but when we make conscious political choices designed to massively increase the influx of, say, foreign residents into countries, and we are deliberately resettling Afghan refugees or Somali refugees into places like small towns in Maine, uh, which, by the way, people on Twitter uh, will state openly that they're desiring to demographically change some of these red communities uh, in order to, uh, you know, enlighten them politically, create political change there, then, yeah, this becomes something that is why people have turned against the country. They're like, this is not operating in my interest. This is taking the community away from what I would consider uh, prosperity. This is what I would consider pr uh, prosperity. And that is why I think we need to have a broader definition of human flourishing, a broader definition of you know, what it means to thrive as a society that is not overly narrow on the economics. And it should be axiomatic, but I'll just state it. Economic prosperity and wealth do not morally legitimate a society. A society is not inherently legitimate, is not inherently moral, just because it is delivering wealth in some definition of the term. We see this in the Bible. Think about the Assyrian Empire, which is the largest and most powerful empire of its day. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was the world's largest city. It was this prosperous imperial capital. And yet, God sends Jonah to prophesy against Nineveh because of the great evil of the people who lived in Nineveh despite all of their nominal prosperity and wealth. If you happen to be a citizen of Nineveh, that is, if you were a slave in Nineveh, it was not such a great place for you. And again, I would go back to my podcast on Herbert Marcuse and his book, One Dimensional Man, and how the critical theorists were able to reject America, even though they thought it did indeed deliver a certain level of material prosperity. In fact, Marcuse thought that was a bad thing. He's like, this prosperity actually makes it more difficult for us to overthrow this totalitarian 
morally illegitimate, oppressive regime. You don't have to like the Frankfurt School in order to understand that there's something powerful about that line of logic, because especially conservatives, but just in general, this idea that economic growth translates into a prosperous society, which translates into a moral society in the some respects a legitimate society, uh, is not a true one. Now, again, if we had degrowth economically, that does delegitimize society. I'm not saying it's not part of, in an industrial era, what makes a society flourish and prosper and what is necessary for society. Industrial and post-industrial society basically cannot operate in a steady state. If you go back to pre-industrial society, if you go back to the Middle Ages, things could remain essentially stagnant or steady for a very long period of time without threatening the social order until some type of plague or something came along. But industrial society requires growth. And if we don't have growth, we run into problems. So growth is essentially, you know, in essence, necessary in order for the system to function. I'm not saying I'm anti-economic growth, but when you get to a reductionist belief that that is what prosperity is and that somehow that growth morally makes a society that encourages abortion, encourages all sorts of perversions, a you know morally legitimate society, I, I just don't think so. And, and again, so I'm not suggesting we should do what the country of Bhutan did. This is in the Himalayas. They adopted a new measure of public well-being. They called it gross domestic happiness, I believe. The leader of Bhutan's like, we're going to measure happiness. Now, of course, Bhutan is a small, poor country and uh, questionable political freedom there. Uh, so I'm not saying that we throw GDP out entirely, but we need to look and say every single time someone brings up a GDP argument, say, what else is being left out of the equation? And what we often see is that GDP and the economy and arguments about the economy are used to attempt to undermine arguments about the problems in our world by essentially viewing those arguments as illegitimate, when in fact many of those arguments are legitimate. You know, the Bible gets it. Man does not live by bread alone. And so we need to break free of some of these narrow economic arguments and think about what are all of the dimensions of prosperity in our society. My guess is if we handed most of us a blank piece of paper and say, write down the things that make for prosperity in society, we'd have to think about it. We'd all have the economy uh, on there. Maybe we'd have health on there. But wow, what would that list look like? To be quite honest, I don't have a comprehensive definition uh, of human flourishing that I could rattle off. We've been so conditioned by this thought uh, that uh, GDP income constitutes the measure of prosperity in society. So we need to break out of that. And I think more than anything, we need to be aware of what people are doing and what they're leaving out when they use economic arguments to measure whether things are going well in our society. So thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you next week.